would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from, the Yagara and the Turrbal people, as the traditional custodians of Mianjin. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Just a heads up, the conversations in this podcast are definitely for adult ears only. There'll be explicit language, direct references to body parts, and very non-PG sexual activities. The chats are robust, so steer clear if you're a sensitive listener or if there are kids around. I've, I've always been really fascinated by the idea of kink in trauma recovery. And I think there's a lot of bravery and beauty in people who really dive into kink communities. And then when you go, I am in control, even if I'm being a sub, I am an active participant in this. Welcome to Erotic Stories, the podcast, where we bring you conversations untying the themes of the steamy new SBS drama series with unfiltered conversations, episode by episode. I'm Nadine Schmerling. In this episode, we're dipping our toes into the world of BDSM, sex, submission, dominance and power. These are some of the themes that play out in the story of Annabelle, the disciplined and dominant lead character who learns to let it all go. In Erotic Stories episode, Come As You Are. In our chat today, we'll be asking Marie Cardi, writer of the episode, to talk us through the inspiration for the character. Exactly how much is fiction? And how much is drawn from experience? Marie Cardi is a celebrated writer, TV and radio personality. She's an avid reader with impeccable taste and co-creator of public storytelling events, Women of Letters and Better Off Said. And of course, she's the writer of Come As You Are, a stellar episode in SBS TV's Erotic Stories. Hello, Marie. Hi, Beauty. How are you? Good. Um, did I miss anything? No, that sounds like the last 25 years, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously there may be some spoilers ahead. So if you haven't watched the show, um, I'm going to ask Marie about it. Um, go have a look on SBS On Demand. We recommend it. It's very sexy. But Marie, tell me a little bit about your episode. Can you give me the brief rundown? Uh, so my episode is about an older, you know, early 50s woman named Annabelle who works in an office and her life is very just so. She likes lists. She has runs her life by a lot of lists. She's very kind of meticulously organised. Some would say a little bit too meticulously organised. Like she likes to know in advance if she's having a surprise party and uh, draw a line through it. Uh, and a younger man comes to work in her office, a very beautiful younger man, um, and they begin a sort of strange frisson which is unnerving to her because he's so much younger than her and she she's not quite sure what's happening and around the same time she receives a letter from someone from her past which really triggers a lot of her past traumas and kind of destabilizes her to a point that as this romance unlikely romance unfolds with this younger man in her office she's finding dealing with her boundaries being broken and disrespected by the letter arriving from her past unlocks some kind of interesting sexual play in her. Yeah. Frances O'Connor. What the hell? Was in your episode. How the hell did that happen? Yeah. What? How did you find out? Uh, 
Well, I mean, we talked about casting uh, a lot and I've got to say Lingo and SBS were so inclusive in terms of talking to writers about casting options and, you know, sending us audition tapes and all that kind of, I mean, you just never dream you'd get anyone like Frances O'Connor. So when they suggested, I was like, oh my God, yes, as if she'd do it. And then all of a sudden there she is being a freaking genius. So was just a real Was it gift. wonderful to see her create your character on screen? Yeah, amazing, really yeah. heartening. And obviously, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but for all the episodes, all the writers are placing pieces of probably some very vulnerable parts of themselves on the page and therefore on the screen. So to have her take, you know, obviously a lot of composite elements of my lived experience along with a lot of fictionalised stuff and just give it this really deep, beautiful humanity. I feel really honoured that uh, she brought Annabelle to life so amazingly. That's so beautiful. She was one of my first um, queer awakenings in Mansfield Park, um, where she plays this really beautiful young woman in uh, a British seaside town. And it was kind of like, just to see her um, on screen doing this with your words was so beautiful for me. So. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like everyone, I talked to Alastair Baldwin, um, yeah. who's one of the other writers on this series and whose episode is just so beautiful and how it's so hard that you, everyone watching it is like, that's you. I mean, watch, I watched Alastair's episode. I was like, that's Alastair. I knew it wasn't Alastair's <laughs> story and it was all, it, it was based on imagination, but I went, that's Alastair. And with Frances O'Connor, I, I was like, that's not me, but if I did look like that, then fine. That's yes, that's yeah. a very pretty version of me on the television. So yeah, yeah, amazing. Did you have a favorite episode? I know it's a really hard question. It is really hard question because we, we we weren't siloed as writers because we you know worked on each other's some some of them we worked on each other's, but ultimately we you know you're in your episode and yeah. then you see them all together. And when I saw the first four that I'd seen together and I cried in all of them and I was so taken aback by the humanity in it, I thought it's not just like steamy eroticism, although they are really erotic, it's it's vulnerability and pain and healing and just that human survival element that came up, I just thought was really moving and I loved that. So much heart. Yeah. Madeline, the incredible director who handled the subject matter and all our personal stories with such uh, sensitivity and kindness and empathy, I can't be more grateful to her and how she brought my episode to life as well as so many of the others. It was really like a moving art. It was so beautiful to watch. Um, so there was the, the 2002 film Secretary, um, which was about an S&M kind of dynamic power relationship. Did it inspire any of this? Was that little part of it in your brain back there? I think once I got the story, uh, I looked to Secretary. Um, I'd seen Secretary, but it wasn't part of this story. This was, you know, again, a composite of many stories, some of which are my lived experiences, some of which mm-hmm. are, the, you know, for the characters. I'll harass you about that in a minute. Go for yeah. it. Um I've I've always been really fascinated by the idea of kink in trauma recovery and I think there's a lot of bravery and beauty in people who really dive into kink communities, Um, well, anyone learning to survive any trauma and whatever tools they take. But my limited but growing understanding of how people utilise that within the kink community, particularly with things like BDSM and the structure within that because people say, I'm going to do this and I do it. 
there are safe words, there's a real, and I, and I started going, oh, there's a real structure to that, which there isn't in abuse when you have no control over what is happening to you. And then when you go, I am in control, even if I'm being a sub, I am a, an active participant in this. And I just think it's, it's so beautiful and brave people being in those spaces, learning how to be touched again, learning how to ask for things, you know, allowing themselves to. Even in being submissive, sometimes there is a fair level and of control. And sometimes people, want, people need to reenact their trauma because that is their early introduction yeah. to sex and sexuality and that that's okay because now they're doing it on their terms. So I really wanted to, to play in that space. And so once we started uh, working on it, I did think about secretary and the beauty in these two people finding each other and their specific kinks really matched each other. So, and it was all about healing and recovery and safety. So, yeah. Yeah. So what was the research besides secretary? <laughs> Where What was your research Well, process? I mean, I have scant, but, but, uh, but active lived experience in that space back in the day. I would say in a lot less structured, I think I was just sort of in that space and then going, oh, this is really great and I, I think it's really beautiful. And then only kind of years later as I got further into therapy and he like proper, proper mental healing, I looked back on that and went, oh, that was part of finding safety again in sexual spaces. Like that's really wonderful. And so... And then have yeah. like worked on another TV series, which is set in a kink club. And we really, um, it, that's still in development, but we were really looking at that as a healing space, a human healing space. So yeah, that's my experience in that realm. Um, so I wouldn't uh, consider myself a spokesperson at all for the kink community um, who are just a very embedded, healing, beautiful community. Um, but yeah, my mm. my limited experiences with it is like, wow, this is a really liberating empowering space to heal. Do you think you identified with Annabelle more or with Florian more or with both characters? <laughs> Definitely Annabelle. So yeah. uh, uh, I, I don't have my today's list near me, but the list thing is very much, my nickname amongst my friends is Planetron. And that's because I grew up in a really chaotic, emotionally and unsafe environment. And so as an adult, the way that I've sought safety is by structure. And as we all know, it's the facade of safety because life is automatically chaotic and fluid and it doesn't live by your list no matter how much you want it to. But it gives me the it gives me the semblance of safety working in the world. Like I'm like, there is some structure in today and I feel like I know what's going to happen, which means nothing bad is going to surprise me. So I've really unpacked that a lot with my therapist about where those lists came from, why they exist, but also I get a lot done. So I'm like, I don't care where they came from. It's, you know, it's like no, uh, trauma healing can be a superpower. And well, it can, because you can also give yourself guides. You can give yourself direction. There's a lot of um, self-control in it. Isn't yeah. It? I've said sometimes you put in your list meditation or, you know, or therapy or whatever it is, but yeah, yeah, so definitely Annabelle. Um, I think Annabelle is, a, is, I would think, more stitched up than me. She's a bit more rigid than me. I don't know. It's confronting to see her. You are a little more punk, a little more. I think so. This is where the arm's lengthening. It's like, it's in an office. It can't be me. But I did. I had the uh, the privilege of, of dating just the most beautiful uh, human being um, about four years ago who was 16 years younger than me. 
And I found it like a kind of ridiculous experience. Like, and all my friends made fun of me and they thought it was very funny. And um, they said, you know, the person you're dating, the, the baby on the cover of Nirvana's Nevermind is older than him. And I'm like, Damn, they were right. It's terrible. But uh, so apart from it being, you know, a great excuse for my friends to wail on me, um, I found it uh, amazing just because obviously it was different generationally and he had different language in terms of, articulation of sex and sexuality, but also boundaries. I remember really early on when we dated, I said, oh, I've just, you know, I broke up from a long-term partner maybe four months before. And I said, I'm sleeping in a bed with someone, even though, you know, we're sexually connected. That feels really intimate to me, sharing a bed the, the whole night with someone. So I think the first night I sent him home and then the next time I saw him, I said, you can sleep in the spare room. And to my surprise, he went, absolutely. And I went, Wow. Oh, you get to ask for something and set a boundary and someone will accept that. And that came from a long history of obviously not only as a child, have yeah. I mean, I didn't even have boundaries, but like whatever I had was stomped over. And then you replicate that dynamic in relationships because that's the dynamic that you're accustomed to. So to be able to ask for something so clearly and not apologize for it and have it be respected was a really gloriously healing thing I was so I felt so grateful um and it really taught me that I could I could set a boundary and ask for it and for someone to go if that is what you want no matter what that looks like I respect that so yeah he I we dated for eight months and I like we're still friends I just love him to pieces so the uh the episode is a, is a love letter to him as much as it is to non-linear ways of healing trauma so Florian is potentially a real person. Yeah, he is a real person, and he was his name Florian as well. No, <laughs> I'm not going to make it that easy for people. No, but no, he's... you know, I just you know, so I can stalk later. No, I'm joking. No, he um, knows. He knows about the episode. We've talked he? about it, but also I think he was sort of saying, "Oh, it's going to be a story about you and me," and I'm like, "It is absolutely not," because he and I did not uh, did not do any BDSM or anything like that. Like our experience, our intimate experience was quite different. So yeah. that's where the composite element and when, you know, the, the, the letter that arrived from someone from my past happened after he and I were together. So it's, you know, it's, it's as all writers do, it's a mishmash of lived experience and with a light fictional glossy coating. But yeah, yeah. he's a real person. And, um, and it was, I think that there's a part in the episode where she has mentioned you have to leave by 10 o'clock and then they're having this kind of date and he gets his phone. She goes, oh, I guess you've, you've got another date. And he said, no, no, you told me I had to leave by 10 and I'm going. And you just watch that moment as she she's knows that she, she's asked for something and he's completely respected that. Yeah. And there's a later moment where he does cross a boundary and that clearly affects the relationship. So for her, as someone who has made herself safe through boundaries, it's, it's pretty amazing to watch that dynamic on screen. Yeah, it's really powerful. And even as a, as a person watching that, episode remembering that I can have boundaries and I can like it was actually really empowering in that sense things that I'd forgotten or things that just it brought up in me certainly past relationships that yeah. had you know um SNM elements um because so often I think that can get blurred um especially back in the day when SNM was kind of happening and we didn't know the rules. There wasn't a lot of literature about it. Um, you know, there were these, I think I jokingly call them the daddy dom characters that aren't potentially very safe. So it was really interesting to see a different dynamic and a different representation on the screen and potentially something that was healthy, um, you know, be played out. 
But tell me about the letter. <laughs> what what did the letter signify? Where is it from? Um, are you happy to tell me about the letter? Uh, I, yeah, I'm happy to tell you. Like, obviously, it's such a vulnerable space, this episode being out in the world. And so I'm I'm really proud of it and I'm proud of the vulnerability attached, but I'm also there are elements that I obviously have to stay self-protective about just for my own mentee age. Yeah. The sealed letter did arrive from someone uh, in my past who I have not had a relationship with for eight years or spoken to or heard from, and it was sort of shoved into my hand in a really inelegant fashion where I didn't quite know what it was. Someone sort of shoved this letter in my hand. I was like, oh, what's what's this? And then I recognised the handwriting and got really re-traumatised. Like in, it was a, you know, they talk about triggers. That was like a such intense top of my head blowing off moment. I didn't know what to do with it. I put it on the porch of my house because I didn't want it in my house. I mm. just went and sat in the bath. I felt like a kid again. I felt, you know, so I didn't, I, I, why is this person contacting me? What do they want? I don't want to read it. I don't want to invite them back into my, the last eight years have been so safe for me without that person in my life. And so it was horrific and really difficult. And then I, I had the most beautiful thing happen, which is when my amazing best friend Kitty said, uh, we actually have this plan in place because I know that this person, there's another letter coming from beyond the grave. Uh, but uh, Kitty read it for me and then we threw it away. So I don't know what was in it. I know to this day it was more. You're not that, curious? No, I just wanted to know that I was safe and the letter wasn't like I want to meet you or anything or I'm coming to your house or um, yeah. Or I'm dying, I wanted to know if that was the case. Or just like for Kitty to give me the headlines if, if there was anything I needed to be concerned about. Yeah. And she went, nah. And I, tr I trust Kitty to hold it. She's my best friend and I trust her wow. to hold it. I now know, I know that someone knows what was in it. And if I yeah. ever need to know, I can ask her. But I don't yeah. need to carry that other person's weight that they've tried to put on me. And that is our plan for when the letter comes from beyond the grave is that Kitty will read it and then we'll just set it on fire. So that person that person does not get to to take up space in my brain anymore. Again, I'm seeing these themes of um, giving over a part of yourself to someone else that you love and trust for them to control. Oh, that's um, so interesting. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Right? And, and um, there's something really beautiful in that. Then in your relationship with Kitty, you've given this part of yourself to her to care for and control and to be in charge of like you would in an intimate relationship, like you would in a sexual relationship even because it, they're such intimate parts of us. So this kind of recurrent theme and this beauty of you being able to let go of things um, is amazing. Do you think you could have done that 20 years ago? Oh, hell no. Hell no. Right. Look, I love, thank you so much for for acknowledging and seeing that in a way that maybe I've been too close to it to see. That's really beautiful. You're so right. And it speaks to that letting go of control because my life is very controlled yeah. because that's where my safety comes from. Yeah. And there are so many elements of how I ask to let go. And that's one of them. That's really so beautiful. And in, yeah. and in the and in the episode, it's not a best friend, it's a, it's a therapist. I don't think I would have wanted to give that letter to my therapist, although I'm sure she would have loved to have read it. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, so, I mean, I only really properly knew that I couldn't get 
I couldn't stay alive without without support and therapy in 2015. Like 2015, I you know I sort of crawled to the end of that year and went, okay, well something has to change. I have to do something differently. I'm going to have to finally sit in that trauma. I'm going to have to talk about it. I'm going to have to heal. I'm going to have to learn how to do yoga. I'm going to have to learn how to meditate. I'm going to have to. So I did DBT and CBT and ACT. I found a really good therapist. I worked, I like, I've got a really strong work ethic. I, you know, I, I would have added all those things to my lists is what I would have done. Yeah. So I just made staying alive my job, you know, and I went, oh, every day I've got to do a stupid self-love meditation. And so, you know, I'd get on YouTube and get some four-minute meditation of someone going, you are beautiful, you are worthy. And I'd roll my eyes hard, so hard that they nearly went backwards in my head. But ultimately, as we all know, it's neural pathways. It's like when you make yeah. gratitude lists, you feel like, oh, gosh, I'm eat, pray, loving. This is gross. But <laughs> Your yes, brain starts it. changing and for me, ultimately, I worked so hard. I was in a really problematic relationship at the time and it was really toxic, toxic relationship and I knew that I had to learn to love myself to get out of it and so I just did those stupid little YouTube things and eventually I was like, hey, I'm awesome yeah. and then that, you know, that was the beginning of my way out of there. And that's, I've retained that. And it's also once you've got that toolkit. Always there, right? It's there. So whenever I take a dip now, and I do yep. like everyone, it was never as bad as it was in 2015 because I've got that little, you know, bum bag full of tools at my disposal at all times. And you can reach in there anytime. Mm-hmm. Ooh. It's really beautiful because um, hearing someone talk so openly and with such vulnerability, again, watching you open and share and hand over parts of yourself is so beautiful and kind. And um, um, so it's just really nice and, and uh, you know, a little emotional for all of us, these conversations, aren't they? Because it, it, it's this constant growth and, and beauty. Um, so I, I'm just really, really grateful. Um, that's so, that's so lovely. And I look, I've, I grew up very publicly and then I would say the last, oh, five or six years maybe I've stepped back quite significantly from a public facing career probably look I would say it really coincided with that time where I just had to stop putting my face in front of everything and do some internal work and learn how to heal so I, so I stopped telling traumatic stories about myself in a funny way to entertain people and just instead sat with the trauma and, and healed it so doing something like this, which is probably the most vulnerable thing I've ever written, really, like the most emotionally truthful thing in terms of how close it is to my lived experience is really intense. Yeah. And even the idea that people will see it and firstly that they'll assume that's very clear my story when it's a mish mishmash, as I said. Yeah. But, but of course, that's how we heal is when we understand that everyone's got their bag of rocks and... We're all, this is the best we've all got every day is the best we've got and and that surviving is really hard. Being alive is really hard and whatever we reach for in those moments to just swing on the vine through to the next day is so fine and learn, knowing that other people are, are white-knuckling as well I think is a real gift. So I'm so happy to talk about nonlinear trauma recovery and healing and what helped me 
and what I had the privilege to have access to and on the times when I didn't have access to things, how I made that work. So, uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to be an open little earnest book about that. I love it. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to take us down a different path. How do we explore BDSM and consent um, safely? Uh, I remember the wonderful Stella Young speaking to me about going to see Dan Savage. And Dan Savage was talking about uh, his experience as a queer person saying, I think we have an advantage over cishet couples who don't talk before they get into bed because they know, I know what goes in, that goes in there, we do that, the end, you know. Whereas he says, you know, I love to have a like, are you a top or a bottom and let's talk about it and, you know, and because, so, you know, Stella uh, had a disability, so she said, I have to talk to people about what, you know, we do beforehand. And I think ultimately that's the key in laying those rules out or understanding like in a quite nuanced way, particularly with something like BDSM, which can get quite uh, physically um, risky um, uh, and challenging emotionally. It could really bring some stuff yeah. up in a way that you don't expect. So having the obviously safe words, understanding what someone wants, being able to stop at any time, which is hugely empowering for anybody that you go, I don't like this and that's it. So tell me just for listeners why, I guess, someone who isn't initiated in the world of, um, you know, power dynamics in relationships or, you know, BDSM kind of stuff, they might be shocked to hear that something that seems as physical as BDSM could bring up emotional things for someone because it seems like, oh, I like the sensation of being slapped or, oh, I like the sensation of being tied up. I think that sometimes there's this disconnection, um, you know, in, in normie land, maybe the word I'm looking for, of why that can bring up emotional stuff, what that might be doing for someone. It's a very big question because, as you would know, it's so dependent on the individual experience and whatever someone is whatever brings them to the table, whether it's whether they want to be dominated or whipped or blindfolded or whatever it is, um, to feel like they don't have control when they do have control. And um, uh, I guess sometimes it might um, re-traumatise people who have been physically dominated if they are being physically dominated in that space, even though it's something that they're an active participant in. And sometimes that's what I was saying. There's a reenactment of trauma on occasions where people go, that happened to me in a way that was really out of control and scary. And now I'm doing it with either my partner or someone I really trust. And I get to replicate that experience. And sometimes maybe there was something I found sexually exciting in it. Maybe there wasn't. Maybe I just need to replicate it in a way that's safe. Um, so there's lots of different ways to do it, but obviously I think conversation is the key and setting out, you know, rules beforehand and really knowing that you're going into it in quite a safe way. And converse, conversations about sex are really beautiful and part of the foreplay and part of it. I remember I don't watch I don't watch pornography anymore because it's not great for my head, but I did go through a period of watching it in my, you know, younger years, my uh, late teens, early 20s obviously because I was just like fascinated by it and I would gravitate towards often sometimes like BDSM porn. But what I loved about it is that it would get quite intense and then at the end, at each, at the end of each video, there'd be, or the end of each clip, the two actors who were in it in little dressing gowns immediately post-shoot just having a chat about, oh, did you like the bit where I did that? 
And I thought it was so clever at going, that was pretend. Those people, someone spitting in someone's mouth or calling them a little bitch or a little whatever it was, they are showing you that they're friends, that that was all structured and that they were both safe and that you don't do that to someone unless it's in this environment and you're both on the same table. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to show that that that's an enactment and it's it's play. It's not yeah. it's not something that you do unless that other person is a participant with you in any capacity. Yeah. So I, I I found that really great. I agree. I, I remember seeing that and I remember, you know, at the time being aroused by it and all of those things. And then yeah, seeing it. And that was even hot seeing them talk, you know, on a different level. Like it was Agree. Like, yeah. Yeah. Do you think writing erotic fiction is different to other kinds of writing? Yeah, I mean it's different for everyone because I'm like um I think just again because of my lived experience I can be quite squeamish about writing that sort of thing because it feels not just private but also uh confused my early experiences of sex and intimacy were really you know unstructured and and not safe and so even watching all of the episodes, you know, I was really kind of, it's like watching Aliens sometimes. You're like, wow, is that what people do? That's so interesting. Um, so for me, writing eroticism uh, is, is just linked to vulnerability um, and healing. So, and it, I have to dive a bit deeper because I can write characters that work in an office and go, would you like a cup of tea, John? Yes, I'd love one, Janice. And then I give them backstories and, you know, you give them jokes and all that stuff. But writing about desire and what turns us on and why is a really like, let's start pulling the thread on the human psyche. I mean, you know, we all yeah. have such unique and complex desire and and what we find sexy and as a result of Numerous things. I mean, you talk about, I mean, Robert Crumb, the graphic artist, who had a really uh, seminal experience as a kid getting a pony ride on his mum's friend's leg and then had a right. really deep leg fetish for, you know, the rest of his life, as far as I know, still does. Legs, big, strong women's legs. That was like a really formative experience for him. And I know you know, there's a lot about Robert Crumb that people say is kind of problematic. I, what I find interesting and amazing about him is that he just writes about his kinks and desires no matter how fucked up they look. Yeah. And he kind of, he likes piggyback riding, yep. strong it's women. It's just honest. Yeah. yeah. And I, I kind yeah. of love that. I think that's great to talk about that stuff. But, and, you know, his beautiful wife, Aileen, who is like my art hero who died in December last year. I have Aileen tattooed on my body. I loved her yeah. so, so much. And she would always talk about people think I'm being degraded because, you know, I like to be choked or I like, you know, I want my husband to kind of ride, ride me around like a horsey. But she yeah. said, I'm an active participant in this and this is our very healthy marriage and sex life. Those two were super into each other for a long time. And I think, yeah, we're a grab bag of moments that feed whoever we are as, you know, erotic beings. I love that. Uh, I work the opposite way. So I used to have a sex blog, which is, you know, back in the day, a, a, a secret sex blog. So I would tell my sexual story and then I would figure out who I was 
by accident. Uh, like I, I remember I'd spill it all out and I'd tell all this, you know, really graphic blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, after a while I'd reflect on it and I'd just be like, oh, what is that saying about me? And then realizing that I think I didn't actually like BDSM that much. Mm. You know, obviously I was exploring something, but it wasn't something that I actually needed. Um, but it, I was so into it, then kind of figuring it out the other way. Well, I think there's a there's a Venn diagram. I mean, I in my early days as a writer, I talked a lot about sex. I did a radio show about sex. There's a lot of sex in my book of essays. But I also, and I don't regret any of that. That's fine. That's sort of like, but... I, they often say survivors of sexual trauma can either go one of two ways, which is really chaste and not wanting to talk about it or quite sexually aggressive or, you know, because um, they're still learning what, what they like and don't like because that, that opportunity yeah. to do that was taken from them. So I think my first pass was to just be out there and a very sex-positive dame, which I am still very sex-positive. I'm just a lot more private about it now. Uh, but I'm like you, you're like, I look back on all that writing and I'm like, oh, I can see what you were trying to reach for here. Like, go, I yeah, can see, on, I can see what funny. you're, yeah. and this is how we learn, you yeah. know, we try and fail and we taste and we like, and we taste and we don't like. And if we keep doing that deep listening, it's going to keep providing a picture of what's going on, which is beautiful. It is beautiful. What do you think most people worry about sexually or erotically? Apart from our bodies because unfortunately society teaches them that they're gross or wrong or they look different to the everyone else's and I, that makes me really sad. Um, I still remember growing up and there were all those articles in women's sex positive magazines going like how to hide your stomach, best, you know, sex positions to hide your stomach or cover up that you've got flat boobs and I'm like, I know they were doing their best at the time but fuck those guys also. Um, but I, I think people think that their desires are wrong or dirty or to ask for something is going to look silly or it's wrong that I don't like doing that and I do like doing that. And the more we can just accept that our desires are our desires, it doesn't matter where they come from or what they look like, but if that's what turns you on, you know, go for it. And I think that's been really freeing for me. I think learning that fantasy is just fantasy and there's safety yeah. in fantasy. It's There's nothing is happening in fantasy. It's just your beautiful imagination and that doesn't mean you want to enact that sort of thing in IRL. Like it's just, yeah. So I think that's what people are afraid of, that there's something wrong with them and there's something right with them. Yeah. How do you define erotic? It's something that we ask everyone on the show. Why? In your current self, how do you define erotic now? Uh, just deep intimacy, I think. Knowing and being known is, you know, uh, that's what I think is really erotic. Um, not so much surface level fucks or skin or anything like that. I think soul knowing and then off the back of that comes really beautiful erotic intimacy. I'm fanning myself. <laughs> Thank you so much. I have like 10 million more questions to ask you, but thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's so nice spending any time with you. This is so it lovely. It is so lovely. You've been listening to Erotic Stories, the podcast with me, Nadine Schmeling. Hey, we're both crying now, so we should stop. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> sexy crying. Sexy, yeah. You can hear more chats exploring all kinds of different takes on desire, sex, and sexuality by subscribing to this companion podcast on the SBS Audio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also catch every episode of the Erotic Story series now on SBS On Demand.